Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Welcome to the podcast. My next guest is Atima Omara. She's a political strategist, and we talk about polls, why they go wrong, and how to get and stay engaged with your democracy, our democracy, I should say, so that it will remain one. Here I am with Atima Omara. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Atima. Thank you for being here. Of course. Thank you for having me. So one of the first things I wanted to talk about is polling. There were a lot of predictions in the last election about a red wave. There were pollsters all over the place who told us that the Congress that we were going to have is was going to be far more red than the one that we actually ended up with. What do you think often goes wrong in some of these polling systems? Are there any big glitches or omissions that you might be able to identify? Yeah, one of the things that really stuck out to me when they were predicting this red wave that never really came was who, in fact, they were polling. You'd see polls that would specifically poll young women and women specifically, and abortion would come to the top of the polling last year, especially post-Roe v. Wade. And then you'd look at additional polling that was broader, and abortion might sometimes be in the top five, Um, But often it would be other issues. So it was like sort of two things that I noticed was one that, you know, it'd be like economy or something else. And then the narrative would then be driven. Oh, the economy is focused. So one, it was lacking sort of the nuance because for when they did polling on women, for example, especially younger women, they would say abortion is very much related to the economy for them because for some of these young women, especially leaving colleges, you know, coming of age, they're thinking, where am I going to work where I have easy access to reproductive rights that I'd always sort of taken for granted, such as access to abortion, access to contraception. Those are factoring in. Also, the economy being the way it was, you have individuals who are, you know, having conversations with their family. Can I afford to raise a child with, you know, the way the economy is? So that factored in. So... For me, you could tell that the people who traditionally get polled are usually the ones who are consistent voters. The ones who are consistent voters historically, and they take like the last three to four elections, will be older, whiter, more established, not as transient. And the folks who don't get polled are folks who have cell phones, are more transient, you know, younger, more racially diverse. So you're leaving out a good swath of the population that also makes up a lot of the base of one political party, sort of the Democratic Party, when you're looking at polling. The other thing that was happening, which I wasn't as aware of, but I was starting to suspect myself, but some folks raised a lot of concerns about it, was these junk polls, essentially, that a lot of conservatives with the interest of sort of getting their base motivated were getting a lot of, were basically doing polling that was from putting in polling that was coming from conservative firms that made it look like abortion and other things weren't of interest. So that was happening as an actual political play. And folks who had worked on the Republican side of the aisle was like, yeah, this is something that we've done. We've done strategies of where our narrative starts to get promoted by you know, giving them a poll that we've done. And then the media just prints it without really a whole lot of questions. And then, you know, it sort of sets the narrative. So you're seeing kind of a couple things at play, a missing of a whole swath of voters who care about issues because they're not picking up the phones. I don't know any millennial or any Xer 
really at this point <laughs> who picks up the phone like I'll look at a phone like we were just talking earlier I got a phone you call so like, right. that is you I'm not picking up like, this phone where is, where is the lie like lie. I, see, I look at the caller ID and if I don't know you I am not picking up the phone and picking if you look phone. like right. and then even sometimes if it's somebody who like sounds like they we might be on the same side of things I will say listen good luck to you it's hard to phone bank but I really have to go like no Nobody, have to go. Right. Right. Nobody <laughs> wants to do that. I think one of the really important points you're making is that a lot of current polling mechanisms are just missing large swaths of voters. But something yeah. else you said that I don't want to give short shrift to is that the way that some of these issues are presented can sometimes be calculated to uh, get a certain answer. So, for instance, in an era where people are really concerned about the economy, if you present abortion as a social and cultural issue rather than yeah. a an economic issue, then you might get a different answer as to how important it is with the subject. Is that kind of where you're going with this? Yeah, yeah. I think it's 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 looking at them as two separate issues. Abortion is over here and economy is over here. And there were so many times during the election where folks were like, it's one and the same. There are are numbers that show that a, a woman, a person who is able to get pregnant, if they are not able to get an abortion when they seek it, and it's usually for economic reasons, uh, the chances of them being worse off economically, it's the turnaway study is what it's called, is a lot higher. Their their credit debt is, is, is worse off. Uh, they're less likely to just be economically stable overall. And so it's one of the top reasons when people go into an abortion clinic or a seeking medication abortion, it's, it's something in their mind, is I cannot afford to have a child. Most people who are... Um, who have abortions are also people who already have children. So they know the cost of, you know, of having of having a child in this country, the cost of childcare, uh, the cost of additional housing if my family is growing. So they already probably have two or three children and they're like, I can't afford another child. Not thinking of it as part of a larger economic justice, economic equity sort of package is really not, is, is really failing a lot of people in this country, in short. You attribute that in part to why the GOP didn't take more seats in the last election, because they were really favored. It was a huge landslide that was predicted, and they took control. Kevin McCarthy is the Speaker of the House, to be sure, but not with the yeah. sort of majority that was predicted. Do you think that it was uh, because they gave short shrift to the abortion issue, at least in part? Yeah, a large part of it. There were a lot of voters who you know, this is post sort of the 1-6 insurrection and the findings of the 1-6 committee were definitely in the media. And then you add in, you know, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, something that a lot of folks who worked in the reproductive rights space, as myself at, at one point, um, said, they're coming for abortion access. They're coming for your contraception. Everybody said, no, no, they'll never actually do that. And then it actually happened. And so you saw in almost every special election afterwards, Democrats were winning in districts where normally they just wouldn't. There was that first race up in upstate New York. Was a, And then all of a sudden they're like, how? And this guy was a white guy. I think he served in the military. Pat, uh, Pat Ryan. And he specifically spoke about abortion as a freedom context, right? Like, this is about freedom. This is about your liberties being taken away. I think the jolt to the 
to the political world wasn't surprising to me and anybody who worked in the space uh, around reproductive rights was Kansas at a ballot initiative that was going to essentially, you know, allow legislators to ban abortion was very definitively voted down by the voters. And it was a cross-section of percentage of Republican voters and a majority of Democratic voters, young voters, black voters, rural voters who came out and said, absolutely not. This should be left up to the person who uh, is pregnant women, women and pregnant people overall. It shouldn't have been a surprise, but it was, it definitely stayed top of mind uh, when I was looking at polling before the election. It stayed top of mind to most voters, even for men. Like there was assumptions that Latino men would, and Latinos overall, because of their Catholicism, uh, believe, you know, being predominantly Catholic, would be, you know, more inclined to be anti-abortion. And those numbers did not bear up. They were actually some of the strongest in this should be a decision that's left up to the person who's pregnant, the woman who's pregnant. One of the things that I think is so important about talking about polling and how people mm -hmm. take polls, how we look at them, how we interpret them, is that, and tell me if you agree with this, I think that sometimes you create a victory by creating the perception of victory. You start putting out there that most, most people agree with you and that perhaps this very extreme thing that you are embracing, and when you start suggesting that your extremism is normal uh, and that more and more people are okay with it, then you really lower the bar for what becomes okay. Do you agree with me? Yeah, I guess so. Some sense, like the bar when the bar is hell. Sometimes I, I think I was like sort of phrasing. The bar is so low. Low. It's <laughs> the bar is now some subterranean version of hell it's or something of, like oh, that. Oh right, right. It's like past the first level. If, it, if you can go inside past the first level, right? I do think so. I think what's what's concerning is that there's a large. The number of Republicans who voted down the uh, ballot initiative in Kansas are folks who I'm sure went on to vote for Republicans in other races, right? Um, but there are people who, you know, there's an interesting conversation to be had about Republicans who very feel strongly about this to show up to vote down a ballot initiative and then vote for Republicans who are anti, you know, reproductive rights overall. But there are people who are like, no, this is this is a this is a liberty issue. This is a privacy issue. This is a healthcare issue. This is an economic self-determination issue. You've gone officially too far. <laughs> well that definitely does something to our politics that doesn't allow us to focus on the things that are so very important. I believe that abortion should be a nonpartisan issue. It should be one of those things up there. It's just like an established, you know, unalienable right. But that is not how those who are make up the Republican Party, the base, the leadership. Um, there are people who call themselves Republicans or are Burgeoys. They're just not the majority anymore and haven't been for a very long time. And that is unfortunate because um, it has shifted our politics for the worse, not the better. Your work really focuses on issues of inclusion and ensuring that folks from whom we haven't historically heard are included in the process. Tell us why you think that's so critically important. I was thinking about this earlier and what I was gonna talk about why I sort of focus on the work that I do. And I always kind of go back to this conversation I had with somebody, um, oh my gosh, it was many years ago for myself in college. And 
sort of why I've done the work that I've done. And that was, he was visiting from Sweden. I was in student government in college. He was in student government in Sweden. And one of the things that he was asking was just a little bit more about the structure of the federal government, you know, representative, all of that. So he said, oh, how many women do you have? And I think I gave whatever number it was at that time. And he just looked at me like the color like drained from his face. And he's just like, you mean you don't have gender parity? You don't have 50% or a little bit more of women and, and men? And I was like, no, we don't. It's just like, how is your government legal? And I remember being so surprised by the way he phrased that. I think it has always been at that point. I'd heard lots of, attended lots of classes on politics and had been involved in like, you know, women's rights organizing spaces. Uh, and talking about gender parity in government. But the way he looked at it as an outsider coming from a country that worked to establish quotas to ensure representation, he's like, how, how, does your, how does it serve the people? How is it legal? And I think that sort of has always been in the back of my mind because it is unsurprising that we have a government that for a very long period of time, not only, you know, in this last sort of, couple of decades, even with the increasing representation of women, but over the last few centuries, has not reflected the needs of its population, right? That reproductive rights wasn't cons- considered and established an alienable right. It's because the population wasn't, re- like the population who was in government wasn't reflective of the people who make up this country. It's pre- been predominantly white men. And while we're chipping away at it more, it's it's a big reason why we have some of the issues that we have. When you are a person who comes to the table and you're a person who's queer, or you're a person who's disabled, or you're a person who's a woman, you are going to think of things differently because of your life experiences. That should, a reflective democracy, should be what we have in this country as a result of that, of racially, gender, uh, sexual orientation, identity, all of those things. But uh, we don't, right? And, and not to say that Black or brown people are a monolith when it comes to sort of their political opinions or not. But they are uniquely shaped by the experiences uh, that they've had, whether they're black people from immigrant communities, you know, black people who families have been here as a result of Middle Passage, families who, <laughs> uh, you know, who are rural, urban. Um, all of those experiences brought to a table can make for a better representation of government. Somebody just recently highlighted her county um, in Virginia, and she's like, um, we have this many women. We have this many people of color. It was like 20, 30 percent almost. And she's like, it's all led by all white men. She's like, how does that make sense? <laughs> So So. that need for inclusion that you talk about, I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, it's really, you know, you are a democratic strategist, but Mm -hmm. if I hear you correctly, you're making a point that's really bigger than a political one. It's Mm -hmm. that the sort of representation matters. do you feel, you know, a lot of the times uh, your conservative counterparts say that they don't get enough credit when uh, they have diverse voices, uh, conservatives of color or uh, female conservatives. Uh, they sometimes feel like uh, it's been reported and often said that they feel left out of this diversity conversation. Uh, do you think that that's fair? And if you don't, why isn't it? I have conservative colleagues that I have worked with in politics who very much see the importance of a representation in politics. Now, for me, I have a a specific interest in that. I believe that 
my reflective democracy should be obviously more progressive leaning. Um, you know, I'm I'm interested in electing good, you know, progressive minded folks to public office and therefore who look like you and I. What if they look like you and I and they're just not progressive? Well, so if they look like you and I, so I think there's two things here at play. For me, if they look like you and I and they're not progressive, I'm going to disagree with them, but I'm also going to look at sort of their, I'm going to look at their race politics. And for me, there's a conservative that's sort of of the W.E. Du W.E.B. Du Bois tradition, right? <laughs> and then there's the and then there's the ones who are magatees, right? Uh, and so the ones who are of the W.E.B. Du Bois tradition believes in sort of the empowerment and the elevation of Black people, and their politics are a little bit economically conservative, but they understand the importance of it. And I've worked with I've worked with those conservatives. I disagree with them on some points, but I have worked with those, and I work with those fine. Again, disagree with them, but I work with them. Um, But then the ones who are literally out here saying, I don't know, black people, you know, black Black people people created slavery. slavery, (laughs) Right. People created slavery, uh, black people being victimized uh, by abortion, all of these things. It's 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 like, okay, stop, you know, literally like playing a certain part to uphold white supremacy. And that's the part I very much don't agree with and don't, I have no interest in working with those folks because they're not being, they're unserious people about some of the serious issues to make our democracy better. That's my opinion. <laughs> you, you are interested in working with and amplifying uh, women and voices of color. What are some of the challenges, Atima, to getting people involved these days? How do you get people involved and how do you get them to want to be involved? Yeah, I remember I was struck by something that a, actually a pollster said when he was doing some uh, review of what really motivated Black voters specifically. He said when Black people, at least the ones we've polled, feel that they have political power, like actual ability to change how we do business, they are excited to get out and vote. Now, I would say that that applies to pretty much anyone, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And he was just specifically focusing on Black voters for this presentation. But I said, that applies to young people. Young people, oftentimes, and I was a young person, I remember being like, you know, especially back then, it was like, oh, God, all I see primarily are older white people. Like, is there any room at the table for me? There was a young activist, a Latina who uh, is from Texas, and she was meeting with um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She got a chance to go to the State of the Union. And she was like, I never thought people like me could be at the table until I saw somebody like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is younger, more liberal, um, and once, again, somebody who was very established. She was her famous primary, ran against the House Democratic Caucus chair and won. And so, you know, it's very much for me, I talk about political power and, and, and using it and that you have it and then find a way to be involved and engaged to change your community. It could be small. It could be, you know, very much focused on your city council or who your commonwealth attorney is or who your sheriff is if you care about criminal justice reform. You know, it doesn't have to just be the presidential election. That's important. But there are so many different ways for you to build political power within your communities. And, you know, for right now, we still have a democracy. Now, are there a lot of people trying to erode that democracy? Absolutely. But it's definitely a 
a, a community effort with your peers and other folks to really go out and, and change the system. You know, I certainly believe that, and that's why I've continued to do this work. And I understand that democracy is not a spectator sport. I'm you know, the daughter of two people who came from a country where democracy failed. Um, and as a result of that, our family made our home here in America. Um, and so I take, you know, that knowledge very seriously when I see that line, that quote, democracy is not a spectator sport, and that's how I've applied it in um, my work, and that's how I talk about it to folks. So, Where's your family from? They're from East Africa, specifically Uganda, like many other uh, parts of, of Africa, uh, suffering sort of the offsets of colonialism, um, the consequences of colonialism. Uh, you know, you had a lot of the British tactic was divide and rule between different clans, between different tribes that often led to a uh, civil war after the British were like, OK, we're done. We're going to go back home after, like, you know, raiding your <laughs> country of resources, wealth, all the other things. Have fun, kids. Um, and, you know, um, a lot of that divide and rule that they sowed throughout a lot of a lot of places across the world, not just in the continent of Africa. Um, had its consequences in trying to, and, not, and that's not the story of every of every nation in Africa, but it's the story of a lot of them. And so I take that, you know, quite seriously. And I think of democracy as as something worth worth fighting for and worth building, and and doing it in a communal uh, sort of way. Atima, before you go, tell people how they can start to contemplate their involvement with their community. I mean, sometimes it sounds so trite to say that, but it just is. You know, you got to fight for your community, got to fight for your democracy, or somebody's going to take it from you. What's your advice to people uh, to get them really engaged with what's going on these days? For me, I, I tell folks, you know, yes, like voting is important. You should do that. You should research the positions of your elected officials. And if they're not, you know, where they should be. There was a great video that was circulating of a black man, I can't remember what state it was, but it was Southern, and he knew all of the names of his school board members, and he was saying, I know you did this on this and so date, and this and that, and when I called you, and blah, 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 and everybody's like, goals. And I was like, right, you, <laughs> you, you should be at these school board meetings <laughs> saying, if you have children especially, you know, saying what what is happening here? What is happening with the banning of books and, and this? Um, students are, are, are showing up because they're these are the people who are supposed to determine their curriculum. So sometimes students are showing up and they should because they're the ones being taught um, the, uh, this curriculum uh, to speak at school board hearings. Going to your city council, your local county or town meetings, getting to know your members of Congress. If you have a little money to donate to campaigns for candidates you really support for for public office. No amount is too small. I know some folks say, well, I don't have a lot to give. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the uh, first person who gave money to her campaign was a dishwasher who gave her $1 a month because that's all he could afford. But he gave it because he so believed in what she was doing as a candidate. So again, no amount is is too small if you want to give it to a candidate you believe in. I've heard of candidates who've talked to folks who said, I don't have that much time because I work two jobs, but I'll give you a day of, of once a month uh, where I can volunteer for your campaign, right? So volunteering, mutual aid stuff in your community. A lot of people are hurting right now in this economy, right? Um, if you have stuff to donate, whether it's a little dollar to somebody who needs to, family needs to stay in their home. You know, I just had 
the holidays pass, but there are things that families need, whether it's uh, people still trying to get formula for their families. If you have extra formula, you're a family that's been lucky enough to not worry about that or the costs of securing that, donating to families, you know, helping people keep their lights on um, and and just organizing and, and building kind of community uh, in general. So I try to, a, a number of ways that's not just go and vote because sometimes everybody's like, okay, I voted, now what? Um, these are just some of the ways I think you can go about building community, getting to know the people who represent you and holding them accountable. Atima, those are really great and important suggestions. And thank you for offering them. Thank you uh, for reminding people of all of the different ways that they can stay involved uh, and stay at the forefront of the constant battle uh, that we're in, frankly, to keep our democracy alive. We've always been in it. We're going to stay in it. We're going to keep moving the ball forward. I thank you so much, Atima Omara, for being here. Uh, thank you for your efforts to engage and energize, and I hope you'll come back. Yes, thank you for having me, and I hope you can come back. <laughs>